Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Reverb, the podcast. Nope, I'm not starting it that way. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I've like never it. said that before. Reverb the podcast, as opposed to Reverb the blog. Reverb the comic strip. The major, me, Reverb, the major motion picture. Whew. All right, get all that out. <clears throat> Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I'm joined on the mic by my co-producer and co-host, Calvin Pollock. Hey, Alex. How's it going? I'm good, Calvin. And uh, making a triumphant return to the mic after a little bit of time away, we have our co-producer, co-host, and great friend, Sophie Wadzak. Sophie, how are you? I'm, I'm very well. Thank you, Alex. It's great Excellent. to be here. It's so good to have you back. We always we always love having Sophie back on the, on the show. Today we are diving into another installment in our ongoing Rejoinder series. So for those of you unfamiliar with our Rejoinder series, this is where we typically take hot takes, hot texts, uh, other kinds of uh, arguments that deal with politics, culture, language, uh, academia, or anything in between that falls kind of within the realm of our wheelhouse and what we typically talk about on this show. Specifically Specifically, things with problematic foundations, loose or faulty premises, records which need to be corrected, let's say. And we take a rhetorical critic's perspective of taking them down, point by point, what is wrong with each of these arguments. And today, we have a bit of a monolith in our Rejoinder series, the beginning of maybe one of the largest texts that we have ever taken on, and that is a recent book by a man called Scott Adams. Sophie and Calvin, I'll just started out throwing this over to you do you know who scott adams is and what do you know about this person he's the dilbert guy right that's all <laughs> yeah that's pretty much yep, that's the, that is the that is the occam's razor answer the simplest and also the correct answer he is the dilbert guy that is how most people know him yeah. uh, calvin do you know anything else about scott adams I mean, I know him as the dilbert guy and when i was a kid i remember really liking dilbert it was kind of an largely apolitical kind of quirky office comic strip like tech office comic strip and humor yeah kind of observational humor a little bit office spacey and so yeah, yeah. as a kid yes. with a dad who worked in that kind of office like it, it was always very funny to me and my dad but then i i am aware that in recent years he's gone politically off the right wing deep end a little bit and and by that i mean taking very strange public stances on, on things and just, just kind of becoming a sort of a provocateur media figure. So that's my that's my perception of Scott Adams now. And I believe Dilbert was actually pulled from from newspapers because it started getting really weird. It was indeed. I can give some context to that last line on his. This is from Scott Adams' Wikipedia page. On the week of September 19th, 2022, Dilbert was pulled from an estimated 77 newspapers after recent plot lines in the strip poked fun at, quote, woke culture and corporate ESG right. strategies. That is organizations that are uh, organized by, with respect to the environment, society, and governance. Part of the plot line, it says here, involved an African-American character who, quote, identifies as white. 
worked, and the company management asking him if he could also identify as gay. Said Adams of his strip being pulled, quote, it was part of a larger overhaul, I believe, of comics, but why they decided what was in and what was out, that's not known to anybody except them, I guess, end quote. Cool. So that uh, adds a little bit of uh, color and flavor to uh, Scott Adams' character here. Sophie, you look deep in thought about this. What what are you thinking right now? Right I now? don't know. It's uh, it sounds like I, I I really don't. I mean, apart from Dilbert, I don't know anything about this dude. Although I just found on his little Wikipedia page, he's like praising Trump's style, I guess, during the campaign, and like I don't know. Well, Sophie, you've actually pointed out the the main thing that we are indeed going to be talking about because Scott Adams wrote an entire book about Donald Trump and Ooh. particularly his interest in persuasion and Donald Trump. This book is called Win Bigly, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter, published back in 2017. So one of the things that I think immediately caught the attention of uh, myself and other people in the field of rhetoric, where we typically study arguments, persuasion, and those kinds of you know strategies, as well as the larger philosophy that that is tied to, immediately this jumped out because you know anytime somebody from outside of the discipline tries to talk about persuasion, normally our hackles are raised just a little bit because, you know, there's a lot that can possibly go wrong in talking about the persuasive arts, let's say. So this book in particular came out to much acclaim as well as much criticism back in 2017. But I do want to ask, before we actually dive into what this book is and what it represents as a public treatise on persuasion, I want to ask the two of you a question. It is intentionally ambiguous and a little bit broad, but I want to hear your thoughts on this. Can rhetoric help us predict the future? Calvin, I'll go ahead and throw this one over to you first. Can rhetoric help us predict the future? I think it can to the extent that we study rhetoric as a kind of data set or as a really as a material artifact of history and that history does tend to repeat itself if we study rhetoric and and collect examples of past rhetoric, we can certainly anticipate future arguments, I think. But I'm not sure that we want to say 100% we can predict with certainty because there are philosophical problems with that that David Hume pointed out in the 17th century or 18th century, right? So it's, you know, the real issue is, will the future in fact resemble the past? It tends to, but not always. I think everything that Calvin said I agree with, right? Like things do tend to repeat themselves and there are patterns of behavior and you could predict arguments. I also think you can maybe make some predictions or projections about how public opinion will be shaped, right? Like it, the same way you can anticipate arguments, you might anticipate how, how they'll, how things will pan out. I think, yeah, it's a tool. It can be used as a tool. I wouldn't say it's like a magic tool, but it could help inform a prediction, I think. 
Certainly, certainly. Those seem like reasonable enough answers to that question that are, you know, picking apart the uh, the vicissitudes and nuances of what it takes to actually, you know, try and know what is coming down the pipe, right? One of the, the reason that I bring this up is because Scott Adams, for all of his things that he's done throughout his entire history, he has been a little bit obsessed with this notion of prediction and specifically self-styling himself as a master predictor, somebody who is really good at feeling the temperature of the of the water, right? Like being able to take the sort of pulse of what's going on in a society, reading people and being able to predict what they're going to do uh, individually and in mass. And particularly, this kind of came to the forefront when he predicted that Donald Trump was going to win the presidency in 2016. He treated that as kind of his, the ultimate feather in his cap, the thing that nobody else thought was going to happen, that he alone only could have foreseen for one very specific reason. Trump is a master persuader. That is uh, Adam's uh, primary contention here. And that is, of course, the subject of this book. What can Donald Trump's rhetoric, what can his persuasion tactics teach us about the nature of reality and how to see into the future? So, I don't know. Do you think, yeah, what, do you, mean, what do you think about that undertaking? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that the it's a strange example to build your case that you're a master predictor on because especially if it's based on this idea that trump is a master persuader because there's no necessary connection between how good of a persuader he was and the outcome of the election the outcome of an incredibly overdetermined election by like a million different factors one of which is just the weirdness of our political system in pure numbers Hillary persuaded way more people than Trump did. It's just that we have an electoral college system that prevented her from being given the office, you know? Right. Sophie, what do you, what are you, what are your thoughts? Well, here? I wonder if, cause I haven't read the book. I mean, it's sort of two questions, right? Like, is he good at predicting the future and was Trump's success because of how persuasive he was? Like, I feel like I can't parse how to respond because I feel like I'm like, I'm focusing on both of those different questions. You know what I mean? Like, it's the case that he could be good at predicting things and has, and that's not the main thing. Like, is you is you truly saying like, because of how persuasive he was, I knew he would win? Like, is that the thesis of the book? Yes, that is oh, that is okay. more or less the essential right. premise of this book. <laughs> you've okay. you, you've already nailed it pretty much right on right on the head. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't agree with that. <laughs> Yeah, like he, of course, he's a good persuader, but, you know, anyone else could have predicted that for a million other reasons, that, that Hillary was a bad candidate in certain states that she needed to win to win in our weird political system yeah, right. or and any other number of if, Like people mm -hmm. were saying that in real time throughout the campaign, like this was being remarked on as it was unfolding. So I, also just think, just I also just think it's hilarious to say, like, I'm a good <laughs> yes. predictor. I'm an oracle, yeah. basically, because I'm, a, <laughs> I'm also a comic strip yeah. writer, but I'm an oracle. Is there anything you can't do? It's yeah. incredible. I think you're exactly right. Like both of you talked earlier on about, you know, how like the Dilbert comic strips were like everybody's parents' favorite thing. You know, my mom would ask for like the Dilbert calendar for Christmas every year because it was so good at, you know, this acerbic wit that picks up on these sort of like banal truths of the workaday world. And I think that, you know, 
if you are inculcated in an environment like that for long enough, you start to think that like every day is predictable. Every day, you know, you take your lunch break at this time and your boss is going to say this thing. You can just predict how these sort of like corporate bureaucratic structures are going to work because it's an incredibly closed social system. Well, and that calendar, that calendar certainly predicted the number of days in the year <laughs> and, and when they were going to fall. So yeah, credit to Scott. It's a great it's point. Cool. The, cal- the calendar is usually pretty good at predicting what day is going to come after the other. And the Dilbert calendar certainly is no exception. So I think we should dive into this book, though. Uh, I'm going to read today as much as we can get through of the preamble and the introduction to this book, because there's a lot going on here that Let's has to it. deal with this question of what does it mean to use a knowledge of personal persuasion or an ostensible knowledge of persuasion to predict the future. So this is the preamble, very short little snippet here called The Day My Reality Split in Two. Here we go. In February of 2016, I began to experience two separate realities at the same time. In one reality, candidate for president Donald Trump had just ended his chances of becoming president of the United States by refusing to disavow the KKK and David Duke on a CNN interview with Jake Tapper. Trump said he didn't hear the question. This was a big problem for candidate Trump. It was also a big problem for me. I was one of the earliest public figures to have predicted Trump's win. So first humble brag right there about his prediction skills. Let's keep a tally up here on the side. I'll do a little ding sound every time he talks about his predictions. Uh, And I was in the middle of an unplanned career pivot from, quote, guy who created the Dilbert comic, end quote, to something like a political pundit. Yeah, the Dilbert guy. Exactly. Right. He gets it. (laughs) That was his public brand. He gets it. Uh, My blog traffic went through the roof whenever I wrote about Trump's skill as a persuader. I don't know much about politics, but I know skillful persuasion when I see it. As it turned out, there was a big demand for what I called my, quote, persuasion filter on the race. Producers for news outlets, both large and small, were scrambling to get me on their shows. I wrote and spoke so much about Trump's persuasion skills that people labeled me a Trump supporter, although not in the sense of supporting his policies. By then, my writing about Trump had already cost me half of my friends. My lucrative speaking career had dropped to zero, and I didn't expect any new Dilbert licensing deals. I had become toxic for any kind of mixed crowd. But I was okay with my situation, because I expected to be right in my prediction that Trump would win it all. Winning fixes most problems. Although the polls disagreed with me, I thought my prediction of a Trump win was looking good until the Jake Tapper interview with CNN. In this version of reality, I had foolishly alienated my friends, annihilated my professional reputation, and cut my income in half. And all I would get in return was a Wikipedia entry under my name saying I had supported an alleged racist for president. The situation was less than ideal. I publicly disavowed Trump because of his CNN interview just to get out of the blast zone. But by then, it was too late to salvage everything I had already lost. Like an idiot, I had managed to turn a respected career as one of the top cartoonists in the country into a grimy embarrassment that wouldn't wash off. That was one version of reality. I experienced a second version of reality at the same time. This version involved Trump brushing off the CNN-slash-KKK controversy and going on to win the presidency. In that version of reality, I would be redeemed in the end, at least in terms of being a credible political observer. Winning always feels good. For the next several months, I lived in both realities. But I trusted only one of them. 
I doubled down on my prediction of a Trump win. If that sounds crazy to you, well, that's nothing. We're just getting started. There's plenty more crazy in this book. Trust the plan. <laughs> trust the plan. Baby. Trust the trust the preferred reality. <laughs> Wait, so I love this because this is this is a very common trope of right-wing political commentary where you kind of play footsie with the idea of supporting a politician or a particular policy or ideology, but mask that by presenting it as if you're just calling balls and strikes or you're you're predicting yeah. the yes. way things will happen. And yes. I mean he's he's very clearly saying like Things could have gone really bad for me, but they went really good for me because Trump won. But he also won't admit right. to like actually supporting Trump's like right. views and policies. Because right? I don't really understand what's at yeah. stake for him. Like he, he's like, I doubled down on my prediction. Like who were there people like repeatedly turning to him to act? Like what's going to happen? Asking him? Like I, I guess I just don't understand what it means to double down on a. A prediction if you're not like who's asking him you know what i mean i, I don't know yeah he did put a lot <laughs> of stakes on that no, I, like yeah. like as if he's like like, like he his, risked his... it all to predict trump but like what did he risk exactly right i'm so glad you pointed that out sophie because i think the stakes of this entire book only make sense if you are scott adams and scott yes. adams alone because the whole conflict that's being laid out here is like oh no what will happen to scott adams reputation right. and also, <laughs> his predictive too, capabilities like, i think i can't remember did you did he say like i thought my prediction was doing good like Rather than like, yeah, Trump's chances were still good. Like I thought my predictions chances were good. Like it's now it's like he's yes. added the layers. That, you know what I mean? Yes. Like or like said it, like, it's actually my prediction. That's the yeah, his prediction be Trump. has become like, like a yes. character in the world the that, the, that that can yeah. act. And... Right. Right influence events well and and the prediction importantly here is a proxy for his overall skill to you know read the room of society right, right. to be able to succinctly talk about and call out the persuasion strategies that are going to make the difference between what happens now and what happens in the future and and keep in mind this notion of multiple realities that he's going to talk about here because mm -hmm. this is eventually going to become very important scott adams sort of articulating this notion of living in multiple realities and being able to prefer or sort of, you know, put stock into one of them, trusted one of them, right? Yeah. And that was the one in which his his prediction would pan out. And that is incredibly important for understanding the overall vanity project that is at the center of this book. So here we uh, we dive into the introduction, parentheses, where I prime you for the rest. So this is, he's alluding to some of the persuasion tactics that he's going to be getting into. He's, he's priming us here. We're being primed. This chapter begins. I am a trained hypnotist. <laughs> That's paragraph number one. There we okay. go. Cool. You got, did you guys know that about Scott Adams? Kind of buried the lead there. I feel like you should open with that. If you're yeah. Well, he is an oracle. I think he. I think he thinks <laughs> of this in, in in supernatural terms. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Actually, Calvin, the very next line here, and I'm going to tell you about the spookiest year of my life. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So Scott Adams, trained hypnotist. I'm going to tell you about the spookiest year of my life. It happened between June 2015 and November 2016. Okay, that's a little more than a year. So he, he clearly needs his Dilbert calendar here to tell him what the, how many days yeah. are in a year. It's a callback right. to you. Sorry, I couldn't Back resist. Mixed calendar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Everything you are about to read in this book is true, as far as I know. I don't expect you to believe all of it, who could, in parentheses, but I promise it is true, to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> okay. Already just as a master persuader. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly. He's as good a persuader as the uh, uh, Jeepers Creepers semi-star from Mr. Show. I know I bring that, that up all the time. Always be good, except when you're bad. Choose to be happy, except when you're sad. Don't quote me on this, don't hold me to that. Is there a God? Don't know for a fact. Should we live a good life? I guess you tell me. Are you the Messiah? Yes, I... You know, I'm the, I am the prophet. Maybe we'll see. <laughs> so, it's kind of like head you head. like yep. spin somebody around three yes. times before you get them going. Like right at the very beginning. Like yep. I don't know if this is true. Yeah. It's a little bit true, except for not really. But take my word for it. Except for maybe not. Like I'm feeling I'm, dizzy not, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like I don't know what's. Yes. I could. He could tell me anything. <laughs> Yep, we we have all put our our foreheads on the proverbial baseball bats and have uh, spun around several times before we're about to run a sprint here. So let's see how long we can make it before we fall down again. So I've waited decades to deliver the message in this book. I waited because the world wasn't ready, but also because the messenger, yours truly, didn't have the skill to deliver it right. The story was too hard to tell, but it was important and it needed to be told. Everything else from here until I say so uh, has a paragraph break in between it. And so I waited. And I learned. And I practiced. And I waited some more. <laughs> then it happened. <laughs> Not a, it's not a book. This is just like, it's just like some kid's website. No, it literally... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I literally, a lot of the critiques no of this book kids. that are out there are, yeah, no offense to the kids out there. We love our kids, uh, but our, uh, but, future. but literally they, they are indeed. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to predict Scott the future, have kids, they will tell you more about <laughs> Scott Adams is, is thankfully not he wishes he indeed, indeed. <laughs> so here we go into the meat of the argument. On June 16th, 2015, Donald J. Trump rode a golden elevator in Trump Tower to the lobby, where he announced his candidacy for President of the United States. Like most observers at the time, I didn't fully understand what I was seeing. It wasn't until the first Republican primary debate that I realized what was happening right before our eyes. Trump was no ordinary politician. He was no ordinary business person either. In fact, he wasn't ordinary in any sense of the word. Trump is what I call a master persuader. Very important concept here. That means he has weapons-grade persuasion skills. Based on my background in that field, I recognized his talents early. And after watching him in action during the election, I have to say that Trump is the most persuasive human I have ever observed. All right, so he's got weapons-grade... <laughs> Yeah, that is, by the way, weapons grade persuasion skills is a concept that will be referred to multiple times in this book. Yeah, that's a it's also interesting that he says, like, being a master persuader myself, I was able right. to recognize it in him. Yeah. Like, it's very, um, well, I don't know. We'll keep, the, keep that in mind, Sophie. Yeah, we'll, I will. We'll keep, we'll keep, keep it in mind. Yeah, well, no, no. Keep in mind the way that Scott Adams talks about his own persuasive skills, because that it's gonna, there's going to be some twisted turns in this chapter. <clears throat> President Trump carried those persuasion skills into the White House, where his supporters say he has gotten a lot done and his critics say he hasn't. 
Supporters <laughs> pointed to a decrease in illegal immigration, a strong stock market at this writing, high consumer confidence, progress fighting ISIS, a solid Supreme Court nominee, and a stronger than expected foreign policy game. Critics saw chaos in the administration, slow progress on health care reform, and maybe some kind of nefarious connections with Russia. President Trump's critics and mine asked me how I could call the president a master persuader when his public approval levels were in the cellar. The quick answer is that low approval didn't stop him from winning the presidency. And according to his supporters, it didn't stop him from getting things done on the job. His persuasion skills, combined with the power of the presidency, were all he needed. Keep in mind that disapproving of Trump's style and personality is a social requirement for people who long for a more civil world. Effectiveness is a separate issue from persuasive skill. I want to pause there and ask what you make of that last Well, sentence. I mean, obviously, yeah, persuasiveness is separate from progress. It, just like how persuasive he is is a separate question to whether or not it, you could predict that he would win or or how, why he was able to win the <clears throat> presidency. But like, so he said low approval doesn't matter because he's still able to get things done because of how persuasive he is uh, ostensibly yeah and the, so and that who last is line, he persuading yeah. <laughs> that's the big question he says effectiveness is a separate issue from persuasive skill so but 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 is he saying that he's effective or that he's, he's because didn't he also say didn't he also say like whether or not he's approved of doesn't He's still getting things done. But then he's like, well, effectiveness is different from persuasiveness. So he's, it kind of seems like he's like more effective than he is persuasive. Like it's like playing right. defense on both sides. Like I don't, it does, it's not saying much. I, I was hoping that one, of, that one of you could make sense of that quote more than I could because I have no freaking idea what he's talking about. I mean, there. you know, it, like, it does make me think of... <laughs> debates in rhetoric and public policy about this very issue mm. there's a classic book called the rhetorical presidency by jeffrey Toulis that talks about like president's policy agendas are not entirely dictated by their skills as managers it's also dictated by their ability to persuade the public to get on board with certain policies and build pressure and then there's been responses to that from people like vanessa beasley who wrote about the unitary executive Basically that like over time, more and more executive power has accrued to the president to where public persuasion just doesn't matter as much. Mm. They, be, they get into office and then they can kind of do what they want to do because they have so much power. Or they're not the ones who are the person. Like once they're voted in, the public like you, you see it played all the time. Like, oh, there's a, the Senate is split 50-50 or there's actually like 55 in favor, but since you didn't get to 60, didn't have like that. Those are the things that are like d determining what right. he's able to do and not, and not like whether yes. or not the public, like we're all, unfortunately, it doesn't actually really matter if the public. So that could kind not, of but. be what, what Scott Adams is trying to say here is that he did a good job of persuading enough people like the right to get people. elected. So even though his administration is a dumpster fire, that does not impugn his status as a master persuader. Yeah. But then right. he also says that like it doesn't doesn't I can't remember how you worded it, but like just just because he has low approval doesn't mean he's not getting things done. 
So yes, kind of that is exactly what he says. And yeah, according to his supporters, his low approval rating didn't stop him from getting things done. I think we're going to learn a little bit more about what Adams means by that. Because again, right. the, the effectiveness and persuasiveness kind of gets broken down a little bit here okay. below. <clears throat> here's where we start talking about reality again. But here's the fun part. I also believe that Trump, the master persuader, was going to do far more than win the presidency. I expected Trump to rip a hole in the fabric of reality so we could look through it to a deeper truth about the human experience. And he did exactly that. But not everyone noticed. That's why I made it the theme of this book. <laughs> okay, so... All right. I have watched enough Doctor Who to know that you can't actually rip a hole in the fabric of reality and expect that some people wouldn't notice it happening. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense. I mean, or it's like he's saying like it's so obvious, but some people are so dumb or like are so much more oblivious than me that I had to write a book yeah. about it. And those yeah. people are definitely going to read it. Like, no, I, th I think like you're saying very much. I think you're spot on, Sophie. The, he just has all of these tells where he has to insert just these little like vain, self-congratulatory lines about how like nobody saw it coming, but I did. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, well, it's also too like in terms of making predictions, like somebody coming to rip a rip a hole in the fabric of reality is was predictable for him. He knew that that was going to yes, happen. like. Yeah. One also, wow. yeah, no, I think you're right about what you said earlier. If you rip a hole in reality and nobody notices, you know, not to go back to the old, the old uh, Cohen about uh, the tree falling in the forest with no one around, but like, right. does it matter then? Yeah, did <laughs> like, you rip nobody, a hole in reality if, if noticed, nothing changed and nobody said anything? Like, sounds yes. like you maybe didn't do that, but... Well, we're going to hear a little bit more from Professor Adams here about the nature of reality, <clears throat> according to most people. The common worldview shared by most humans is that there is only one objective reality, and we humans can understand that reality through a rigorous application of facts and reason. This view of the world imagines that some people have already achieved a fact-based type of enlightenment that is compatible with science and logic, and they are trying to help the rest of us see the world in the, quote, right way. As far as I can tell, most people share in that interpretation of the world. The only wrinkle with that worldview is that we all think we are the enlightened ones. And we assume the people who disagree with us just need better facts, and perhaps better brains, in order to agree with us. That filter on life makes most of us happy, because we see ourselves as the smart ones, and it does a good job of predicting the future, but only because confirmation bias, that our tendency to interpret data as supporting our views, will make the future look the, any way we want it to look within reason. You, you, are you dizzy yet? But did, isn't he not just saying exact? is he not talking about himself? Like Yes! What? But this is projection par excellence right yeah, here. Yeah, pretty amazing. But I feel like he's also, he's setting something up here where he's going to be able to say, yes, I am describing myself, but I'm yeah. also describing Trump. Yeah, he's which is why in. Trump won. Right, right. So what I saw with Trump's candidacy for president is that the, quote, within reason part of our understanding about reality was about to change bigly. He really wrote bigly in there. I knew that candidate Trump's persuasion skills were about to annihilate the public's ability to understand what they were seeing, because their observations wouldn't fit their mental model of living in a rational world. The public was about to transition from believing, with total certainty, quote, the clown can't win, to, quote, hello, President Trump. 
And in order to make that transition, they would have to rewrite every movie playing in our heads. That's just bad writing. I have to sorry. <laughs> to put it in simple terms, the only way Trump could win is if everything his critics understood about the true nature of reality was wrong. Then Trump won. That's what I mean by ripping a hole in the fabric of the universe. He said reality before, not the universe. Think of it as the moment your entire worldview dissolves in front of your eyes and you have to rebuild it from scratch. As a trained persuader, I found this situation thrilling beyond words, and I was about to get a lot of company once people realized what they were seeing. I'll help you find the hole that Trump punched through the universe, so you can look through it with me to the other side. Put a seatbelt on your brain. You're going to need it. Put a seatbelt on your brain. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's a little... Like, it's so... It's so hyperbolic like the idea that like who wins the american presidency is something like that fundamentally shifts the universe like it's right. like the whole the fabric of reality mm. in as much as we're talking about like a very closed system that is like so constrained i would take this guy more seriously if he wasn't trying to like let me know that this is the most amazing thing i've ever heard like if he would just bring it down a few notches i would like maybe listen to what he has to say but it's a very a little unusual too i wasn't expecting him to have this like you know kind of like grand writing style because dilbert was pretty pared down right like <laughs> so it's not how i expect yeah. him to write but it's like he's like a kid telling a story like <laughs> yeah that's great I a lot of no, emphasis I, <laughs> no i i agree i think like it's such a 2017 book 100%, in some ways 100 where it's like yeah that's important uh, to remember i guess and and i'm actually glad that we've had the midterms that just happened in 2022 yes um because the 2020 election was very weird too and was so mm. overdetermined and contextualized by the pandemic and by January 6th and like all of this wild stuff that, that was happening around it that I feel like books like this, you know, this is not like that original of a claim. That's the hilarious thing about it. A lot of people were writing this same kind of commentary, like this shocked the entire liberal establishment. It shocked all the prediction markets. It shocked all the polls, all of the political commentary and it's like a totally new reality. There's a pre-Trump and a post-Trump reality. And I think maybe we can see now that it's, it wasn't a total disjunct. Like yeah. maybe it on its own was kind of an, an aberration. Not a total aberration. But the fact that it didn't usher in this like post-Trump Republican domination of politics. I think makes this kind of commentary look very dated. Because... Sure, it, it revealed certain things that commentators weren't seeing as clearly as they could have, but I don't know if it blew a hole open in reality, particularly because yeah. he only won by like one point. Well, like, right. It wasn't, wasn't like a landslide. And also, <laughs> exactly. I feel like it's, it's, I think a lot of people's feelings about it, because he is so disliked by so many people, like, is it accurate to say people thought it couldn't happen, or is it that they thought it shouldn't happen? Because they, they I didn't feel like, want it to happen. Yeah, yeah like, it, it, it was, it's, I feel like the whether or not you thought it was likely, I think is like skewed a little bit by how much people did not want it to be likely. And so yes. right. that's, I think, more, a, a more accurate 
description of the dynamic. Because, like, if you detach yourself from, like, caring about what happens, maybe people would have less of a... It wouldn't be so shocking to think he could win, because, like... But how do you detach yourself from that when it's politics? I mean, this is such a privileged way to look at politics. Right, right, right. Well, and he... he, Which he takes himself, because he's like, I don't know much about politics. Like, he's, like, just a... He's just a regular guy. Like, he doesn't really know. He just knows... Because he's because he's so skilled, he can recognize somebody else's skill, even though right. he doesn't really get involved. Like, yeah, I yeah. Know. Well, so I just well, I uh... hypnotize people, and I and <laughs> right. I receive I don't know. I write predictions I, from yeah. on high. <laughs> right. Well, Sophie, let's go and talk about Scott's politics for a bit. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to read directly because he goes to great lengths to talk about why he labels himself quote an ultra liberal, and by that I mean liberals seem too conservative to me because he's again doing this. He's doing this kind of hedging in his argument to explain, you know, hey, I'm not a conservative. That's not right. the reason that I'm saying Donald Trump is so great here. And so, you know, he talks about let's see, generally speaking, conservatives. One of it's very pedantic stuff where he's like. You know, actually, if you if actually I'm pro abortion and pro like women's bodily autonomy, to which I just have to say that Scott Adams, let's see, this is reading from his Wikipedia page. Adams has compared women asking for equal pay to children demanding candy uh, back in 2011. Oh, so, really? uh, so that's oh, so that's, really? uh, you know, just a, just a little frame checking there for uh, the Dilbert guy. Uh, he talks about other things. Uh, you know, he's opposed to legalization of marijuana. He He's actually in support of it. You know, he doesn't have any opinions on economics and foreign affairs. They Let's see. Uh, neither what? does anyone else. My opinion on my own limitations doesn't match that of any politician. They pretend uh, they have enough information to make informed decisions. And, so he's uh, not yeah. getting into it if he can't make a prediction. That's not like y- yeah, nobody can yeah, predict ex- that. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Nobody can predict. Don't it even ask me. And if people say yep. they can, they're wrong. Exactly. That's exactly right. But just to check this whole frame of himself as an ultra liberal, other things that he said that have been controversial, he caused controversy by pointing out satanic coincidences in the Joe Biden presidential campaign and even went on to predict that, and this is quoting from his Twitter, uh, July 1st, 2020, quote, if Biden is elected, there's a good chance you will be dead within the year. Sorry, what satanic coincidences? Can can we circle back a little bit? (laughs) Sure. uh... Yeah, let's go ahead. And uh, I, I didn't actually. We should have done this totally for Halloween. This. Yeah, this is maybe this we can do a Washington... spooky follow up. We can, <laughs> yeah, going into all the conspiracy theories that Scott Adams has peddled here. Let's see. Do 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 do. We'll bring light in the darkness. Okay, <laughs> hang on one second. Let's. Yeah, this is sorry. There's a Washington Times article that we could oh, dive sure, into sure, sure. here. I mean, it was just all this stuff that he says in these like morning vlog posts that he does over coffee. Okay. Um, I'm going to look see. into this. He's, spe- he's, he's speaking and saying, you know, uh, we'll bring light to the darkness. Cities are actually on fire. California is on fire, said Mr. Adams. Quote, so if you were Satan, wouldn't you expect that Satan would speak in terms which are true but misleading? Asked Mr. Adams. Quote, meaning he will bring you the light, but there's a catch. It's fire and it's burning your stuff. That's exactly what Satan would say if Satan existed. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that Joe Biden is possessed by Satan. I'm just saying or it would look Satan exactly exists. like this. Okay. I'm not saying that he exists. But if he did, it would look exactly like Joe Biden. End quote. So a satanic <laughs> coincidence is 
that if the devil was real, he would probably say exactly what Joe Biden just said, and that's the coincidence. Okay. Yep. Precisely. Or perhaps uh, probably one of the most monstrous, I don't know if I would even call this a political position, but in response to a lot of the mass shootings that were happening, especially kind of culminating over the summer, on Twitter, Adams argued that society leaves parents with only two options when their teenage sons become a danger to themselves or others. Watch people die or kill your own son. That is literally a thing that Scott Adams said. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, it's a it's a lot. He is uh, he is a very, I would say, verging on a monstrous person. Um, But also just also just like uh, such a random grab bag of wild takes on everything. Kind of picking and choosing what he's going to weigh in on and able to like, you know, (laughs) I don't know, predict and share wisdom about. Wow. That's right. Okay, let's go back to the book here, though. Policies aside. I was clearly a Trump (laughs) supporter, in scare quotes, in the sense that I spoke glowingly of his persuasion skills, his humor, and his business talent. I was among the first observers, some say the first, to identify his political maneuvering as (laughs) such. Let's add another ding there on the... (laughs) That's also... A very Trumpy way to say that. Yeah. Too. Well, some would and, say the first. And yeah. you know, you know, Calvin, I think you're picking up on a little something <laughs> that's going to keep happening over the yeah. course of this book. He's Let's listen closely for it, if we can. Some say the first to identify his political maneuvering as solid strategies borrowed from the business world. I was making that point while most pundits were labeling him an unhinged clown. I know a lot about business because I've observed it and lived it in a lot of ways. I write about business in the Dilbert comic, and I've published several business humor books. Are they, are they Dilbert books, though? That's what I want to know. Are they yeah. just Dilbert compendiums that right. I read when I was in sixth grade? Um, yeah. yeah. Dreaming of also, life. Yes, exactly. They were aspirational at that point. Not so much anymore. I write about business in the Dilbert comic. I've published several business humor books. I also spent 16 years in corporate America. First at a large bank. (laughs) He was a teller. uh, And later at a phone company. I held about a dozen different jobs at those companies and got to see business from the perspective of technologists, marketers, strategists, leaders, followers, and more. I also have a BA in economics and an MBA from the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. And I've managed several different types of businesses of my own. The Dilbert business is a substantial enterprise, and I manage that. I also co-founded a startup called WenHub, and I help manage that. Sorry, I just had to look into what WenHub was. Uh, so just as an FYI, it's kind of it's kind of like a mixture between like Cameo, but on the blockchain. Sorry, I should read from the Medium page of this very defunct looking uh, business. It has 11 followers on Medium. <laughs> WenHub is a mobile app that makes it easy for anyone to video call an expert on any topic with a friction-free smart contract transaction. So nothing scammy at all sounding okay. about that. Okay. That's another so one of his. So he's saying like he's yeah. bopped around the business world for what two decades, never really landing on anything or doing anything. I mean, I guess Dilbert's <laughs> successful, but Dilbert, like, Dilbert, yeah. sure. Well, but like, well, but I was, I was going to say too. I think he mentions Dilbert as a substantial business enterprise. Does yeah. he mean the business within Dil- Dilbert, like the <laughs> company that Dilbert works for? Does he mean he he maintains that fictional universe, and so that yeah, is, that is a big enterprise the in That's the right. comics. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. He's got that, that's that's another business that he it. Yes, yeah, Dogbert is another uh that's the, the co-manager. CEO. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 
<laughs> he has to manage a business within a business. And then now he says, I make no claim of being a great business person, but I can usually tell the difference between good business practices and bad. Political pundits and writers covering Trump during the campaign generally did not have business experience, and I think that put them at a huge disadvantage in understanding the power of his methods. It wasn't all about persuasion. He also used high-end business strategy all the way, and you wouldn't recognize it as such if you had never spent time in that world. <laughs> okay. So, so it's like, you have his, like his ethos paragraph. <laughs> Yeah, that like Business Week should, yes. or like you know, like like business periodicals, they should have done pun more punditry, exactly, and and put more like business reporters. That's right on it, and then maybe we would have predicted this. I also don't know why he's now saying it's not all about persuasion. Like this is the second time he's done that. Just like when he was like, <laughs> yeah. well, when he won the presidency, just because that people didn't like him doesn't mean he didn't get things done. Like, that wasn't about persuasion yes. either. So, like, maybe yep. that's the great, like, trick is that, like, it's actually, this is... Because it seems at every point he, like, comes up to a point where he's kind of talked himself into a corner where like, he's not... <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, well, yeah. it's not really about that. Like, Yeah, my expertise on this has run out, so therefore, yeah, let's so just let's do a just complete call it turn. Because it's the totally whole, fine. Yeah. Like, it's, it's a <laughs> the other, the other thing, The other thing I don't get here is, like, by most sort of business profitability metrics and stuff like that, like most of Trump's enterprises are not very successful. That's what I was going to say as well. Like <laughs> maybe if people were in the business world, they would know that he's not um, exactly praised for being like a good business man and is not yeah. known right. for his successes exactly. So like, um, that was the part that I just could not wrap my head around. It was like, I yeah. thought, like, isn't it pretty well known that Trump is actually, like, kind of a shit businessman? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I guess he's good at, like, exploiting people and finding loopholes. So, like, yeah. right. in that regard, and maybe that's what he means. Like, he knows how to game the political system, like, play it like a businessman and make... Right. Tr treat it like a treat it like a business instead of... Because that's what he said on the campaign trail, right? Like, I'm... Yes. I'm not a politician i'm a businessman like it seems like I make deals <laughs> he's just like drank the kool-aid of trump and he's like trump's great because he's a businessman right. he's not like a, he's not like other politics like he's saying just everything trump says about himself like he's not there's yet to be yeah, a, like a revelation very objective no yeah. it right. doesn't well and it's also not it's not strictly speaking something that distinguishes trump like that's literally like right. i still remember back when we did our reverb ep on uh dialogicality where we had to listen to that whole god-awful clint eastwood speech at uh one of the, yeah. the 2012 uh rnc where he gave right. the empty chair obama <clears throat> speech but he literally was like recycling the oldest trope in the like conservative republican playbook which is we need somebody to run this we're on this country like a business we need a businessman but uh, I think it's maybe time, what do you think, for maybe a uh, businessman? How about that? A stellar businessman. Quote, unquote, a stellar businessman. Like, that's, they, they've always said that. There's, this is nothing right. new. But again, I want to continue on here with Scott's credentials to make sure that we get through this part, because this is Sophie again, where I want to call attention back to, you know, you pre were presuming early on that Scott considers himself a master persuader. <clears throat> here we go. This is a good place to tell you where my credentials rank in the field of persuasion. I label my persuasion skills commercial grade, <laughs> meaning that I successfully okay. use persuasion in my work. A few levels above me in talent and credibility are cognitive scientists who study this sort of thing for a living. 
If a cognitive scientist tells you that I got something wrong in this book, trust the scientist, not me. In my view of the world, the few individuals I call master persuaders are a level above cognitive scientists in persuasion power and possess what I call weapons-grade persuasion skills. The qualities that distinguish weapons-grade persuasion from academic or commercial types are the level of risk-taking and, res and personality that goes with it. Trump the candidate had an appetite for risk, a deep understanding of persuasion, and a personality that the media couldn't ignore. He brought the full package. Here's the summary of persuader types. The most powerful are at the top. So this is a bullet point list here. First one is master persuaders. And he gives examples for this one. Uh, master persuaders includes several presidents, Steve Jobs, Peggy Noonan, Tony Robbins, Madonna, etc. Etc. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people like that. Everybody like that. Several yeah, presidents. It's like, it's like a lamp... A walrus, <laughs> burning toast, yeah. my forehead, etc. stuff. You know. <laughs> the most eclectic list you could possibly... Yeah. Madonna. And just, you know, yeah, people I like mean, that. She is, she's great. Don't sure. get me wrong. Sure. She, I, great Peggy Newman talent. was the one that was sort of like, one of these things is not like the others. Yeah. Like, where, yeah. where did that... Is he just thirsty here? Like, what's going Wait, on? Wait, Peggy Noonan is like a columnist, right? Yeah, She's just yeah. Like, yeah, she is. What makes uh, her a master persuader? She, yeah, called she him is in. a weekly columnist he for like, the Wall Street Journal. So. Wall Street he Journal, that's right. did her a solid. That was like him promoting her in his book. So she I think he, yeah, yeah. he was. He Why was are looking... no Dilbert characters appearing on this <laughs> list? Because I feel like. Dogbert is supposed Dogbert to be Dogbert master persuader. Yep, yeah. exactly. Or at least Catbert. I mean, come on. Um, so, so then we have Catbert stands going off in the chat. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> we love our. We love us some cat. Literally, my cat is going under my microphone. Tweet right to now us. Tweet, tweet to us about uh, cat. Yes. Catbert. Tweet, tweet to us about how much you <laughs> love Catbert. Hashtag Catbert. Okay. Exactly. Pick your bird. <laughs> Hashtag Catbert was right. All right. So number two on the list is cognitive scientists. So that's not referring to the actual profession of a cognitive oh. scientist. <laughs> <laughs> that's a level of persuader as a cognitive Bro. scientist okay oh like uh, they're then, doing science on your mind like that kind of yes. cognitive yes scientist. it's okay. a real term sky you can't just <laughs> yes. like for me i say mathematician this. i don't mean people who study math <laughs> i mean right. oh my god yeah so and then of course at the bottom of the list is commercial grade persuaders people such as me i'll try to <laughs> Does he give examples from the for the other two? Because I no, no, he only oh, he doesn't God. give examples of cognitive scientists. He only gives another example of the commercial grade persuader, which is himself. Oh right, people so, such as me, such as me. Uh -huh. I'm the only uh -huh. one. He yeah, so he, he <laughs> me etc. <cetera. laughs> oh, man, he says further. I'll try to compensate for my lack of a PhD in cognitive science by linking to sources <laughs> where it makes sense. But much of this book is based on decades of personal practice and observation of what works and what doesn't in the realm of persuasion. And this is in italics. I encourage readers to remain skeptical and check any of my claims on their own. A simple Google search will confirm or debunk? Question mark. Almost <laughs> anything I say in this book about persuasion. That's like oh, he God. began the other. Is this the next chapter? That's how we started the last time. He was like, I'm not yeah. saying all this is true. It definitely yes. is. But don't take my word for it. Like... Yes. That's he's doing it all over again. Like I'm pretty mm -hmm. persuasive. I'm this not most this, persuasive. this book is like 
so inspiring because it's like you <laughs> can write it. a book. Yes. Anyone can write a book. <laughs> yes. If yeah. you, like if this is a book, man. Well, you can literally he did just build anything. his Dilbert Empire first. He did have yes. to. He's standing on the shoulders of his own Dilbert Empire. Yes, that's exactly yeah. right. I want to scroll through here just for the sake of time. There's a the next section is all about like it's literally the heading is but Scott Trump is a horrible monster, isn't he? And <laughs> there's a lot of sort of like meandering and tiptoeing around like oh, but Trump is doing a lot of bad things. But actually, if you really think about it, they weren't that bad. The essential argument here is that Trump was actually going extreme on a lot of his rhetoric, but the talent, the persuasive talent here uh, that was at play was that he was going extreme so that he could actually get a middle position. He was just doing savvy negotiation. Even the half measure was still better than the extreme, you know, border wall, you know, deportation of every immigrant kind of thing that he was calling for. So he's really doing a lot of, I guess, like apologia for the the actual horrors of the Trump administration, like saying, actually, his bark was worse than his bite. So I don't know. We can talk about that for a little bit, but he was trying to persuade people to do something even more horrible because he really didn't want it to be that horrible. Just a little bit bad was the thing he wanted to get done. Okay. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that is kind of a, I guess, you know, like as leftists, we, we tend to advocate for stuff like that. Like why not cancel all the debt or, you know, have progressive politicians advocate for canceling all the debt so that when a centrist actually makes the call they go halfway between that Mm -hmm. and and nothing you know Mm -hmm. but i don't think that really works when it's like i'm advocating to ban all muslims so that that we'll just ban some of them because that's what i really want yeah exactly yeah yeah, i don't that only like oh yeah well well that's not that monstrous right you just want to be just savvy negotiating yeah Yeah. yeah, exactly exactly well i guess he gets to do that because he's not again he said he's not weighing in on the politics of it he's just saying like if he was trying to persuade people to do something really bad that's right then actually he didn't get what he it's it just doesn't (laughs) it doesn't really work it doesn't work no I don't think so either. All right, so we're going to finish out here this chapter with the last section. The subheading here is why I could see and say what other pundits could not. So, (laughs) see and say. Classic. I look in my mirror and I see what I say, and then I just say what I see. (laughs) Good old, good old susery right there. All right. I had an advantage in explaining Trump to the public because I have an unusual talent stack. We'll remember that we'll just put a little dog ear on that word talent stack because that's going to come up in later chapters. For starters, I'm a trained hypnotist and a lifelong student of persuasion. Trained persuaders recognize the techniques used by other persuaders in a way that the untrained do not. So I had that going for me. As I mentioned... Yeah, I know. I This is literally, like, this is why the critiques have said this is just a hodgepodge pastiche of blog posts that yeah. he yes. might not have even edited That's when what he I was threw gonna them say. together. <laughs> That's kind of what I was getting at when I said any of us can write a book. Like, any, yes. anyone on this call, anyone listening, go write a book because yeah, this yeah. apparently counts as a book. Print your, in, in like, that, your Twitter yeah. history and just right. find it. Yeah. 
in that regard, this book is very inspirational. Uh, yes. As I mentioned, I was also among the first, or the first, to point out that Trump was using high-end business strategy that looked crazy to political pundits who had no business experience. I have extensive business experience across a variety of fields. He already <laughs> said this, is only, this is only sounding more ridiculous because I skipped over that section, to be fair, sure. but like he is literally you know, treading he the exact same ground that. that he already went over. So yes. most of what Trump was doing looked familiar to me. For example, where others saw Trump pushing outrageously impractical and even immoral policies, I saw him using standard negotiating tactics and hyperbole to make it easier to find the middle ground later. And he did. I had a lot of advantages in understanding Trump's communication style and his powers of persuasion. But when it came to communicating what I knew, I had one enormous advantage that almost no one else covering the election had. I wasn't doing it for money. Oh. I'm okay. Now, now listen to this paragraph. This is one of my favorite paragraphs of the chapter. And it's just one of those things where I'm astounded that he, that he put it in here. I'm already rich. No one okay. owns me. <laughs> The common business term I'm for rich. that. I'm rich. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say. We'll put in the sound clip, maybe, and fade it out or something. But. It's funny what you say. You ready? I'm already rich. No one owns me. The common business term for that is having fu money, and I have it. He he actually says. F-U with the letter. He doesn't say the whole expletive. Gotcha, gotcha. He's having F-U money, and I have it. That Gilbert gave money, me... Baby. Yes, that's... He's got... He's got <laughs> Another word for that. Yeah, he's got D money, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I have it. That gave me the freedom to say whatever I thought was both useful and true. And mm. thanks to my popular blog at Dilbert.com, I had a direct <laughs> channel to the public. <laughs> I... Honestly, that's like the third thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I log on to Dilbert.com. Yeah. Dilbert.com. That's see actually what I have is my, going on. <laughs> right. I have my Chrome set up so that when I open a new tab, it starts Home on Dilbert. Yeah, obviously. Yes, yeah. yes exactly. It's, the the, the, it's the that first place good. to go for all your news. The front the paper of record. Event. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> What's he going to say today? Oh, my God. I also knew that there would be plenty of haters coming at me as soon as I started saying good things about Trump's talents. And I wonder if that drove they... blog traffic. I wonder. I, I truly, right. I don't know. I truly wonder if any of this hmm. is just about milking engagement, uh, getting which is, more money. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. I also knew there would be plenty of haters coming after me, and come after me they did. Amateurs, professionals, and paid trolls alike. Luckily for me, I had a three-word philosophy beginning with an F and ending with money that covered that situation. Fu money for those of you. Right. Who oh, right, right, right. And I made sure my readers knew that's how I was thinking. The freedom to say whatever I wanted to say and to do it publicly was half the fun. Oh, I also have one more thing going for me. I don't feel shame or embarrassment like normal people. I wasn't always this way. It's a learned <laughs> skill, and I knew it would take all of my embarrassment avoidance talents to survive what I expected would be a year of abuse at best, and at worst, if my critics were right, a lifetime of mockery for the things I was about to say in public. That kind of risk has never stopped me from doing anything. No, you don't say, Scott. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, he's really kind of fashioning himself sort of a, tr a Trump-like figure really yes you right. know so Very successful so. and he can say whatever he wants like and that's i mean i guess it kind of makes sense if he believes trump to be so persuasive that he would communicate like trump because he also yes. like i guess but 
It's not yeah. really working for me. Nope. Nope. I confess to enjoying the adrenaline of it all. We're just about finished here. I invite you to come along for the ride in the form of this book. You're going to like <laughs> it. I invite people of all political perspectives to enjoy this book without getting sidetracked by politics. I won't be discussing policies except in the context of persuasion. This book isn't designed to change your mind about, about politics. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Right. So it is kind of about politics, but only in the context of persuasion, which right. is the entire subject. It's just of the book, book. but yes. otherwise we're not going to talk about. Except it. it's not really the subject of the book. <laughs> no, because he he's said almost nothing about persuasion. He yeah. hasn't defined. Well, this is just it. the introduction. Yep. Yes, That's this true. is only, He has only made time to say yes. three times that he's a trained hypnotist. But he has he hasn't yes. said what. <laughs> Persuasion is. What persuasion yeah. is, yeah. Yes, yep, exactly. This book isn't designed to change your mind about politics or about Trump. All I hope to do is teach you some things about persuasion by wrapping it in an entertaining first-person story. With your permission, let's do just that. I see. And that is the end of the introduction. So he's just so, using this as an anecdote to help us learn a thing or two. But the precisely. lessons are directly tied to what... So it's really more of a case study. Yeah, yes. it's a case study analysis. Yes. It's a dissertation. Yep. It's a vehicle um, for his truth about reality mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. persuasion. Yeah, I mean, can we can we zoom out and and ask what what have we learned that he's saying Trump does well? Because I have no clue. Yeah, when he said that Trump was a weapons grade persuader, or however he says it, right? He mm-hmm. said that I knew, he classifies Trump thusly because I think he said he because he knows a lot about persuasion. Mm-hmm. So right. he's persuasive <laughs> yeah, because yes. he really knows how to be persuasive. So like, Yeah, it's a bit of a tautology okay. there. Yeah, circles are round because they're round because they're circles. And the other thing that I'm confused about, okay, so he's, yeah, he uses business strategies. That seems to be part of it. Mm-hmm. So he persuades like a businessman. Businessmen are good at persuading. Therefore, he's good at persuading. Yeah. He, now, is he saying that Trump didn't have, maybe Trump had a few money and that enabled him to say things that yeah. other people, other people couldn't say weren't saying or yeah. he's like a risk taker like it's the right. riskiness so so i think i think what at least my position and this is actually gleaned from like listening to what you both have had to say in this that i didn't actually notice when i was reading through is that this whole chapter is kind of this like very transparent and like hack sort of enactment of Trumpian rhetoric that he is trying to and he literally says right from the very beginning the introduction parentheses where I prime you for the rest I think that 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 probably there's going to be some like very tacky sort of reveal later on somewhere in this book that was like remember when I primed you with all these concepts and repetitions of things during the introduction and I kept listing all of my credentials ad nauseum and I kept repeating myself and like you know literally it's just like the most base level middle school debate persuasion tactics that he is trotting out here to be like, I'm going to make an argument about why Donald Trump is a good persuader using the same kinds of language and persuasive tactics that he does. But like anybody with like half a brain, you know, like, and we, you know, we in here know our stuff about persuasion. We have half a brain. yeah, we at least have half a brain between the three of us. Uh, yeah. But like, you know, we we could just very easily see through this as being like, okay, yeah, this is nothing new. <laughs> this is nothing interesting. This is yeah. just trying to do like this very low level manipulation from the perspective, for, you know, like something you'd expect from like 
yeah, a, a hypnotist or a magician at a children's mm-hmm. birthday party or something like that. It's not yeah, yeah, anything, yeah. anything revolutionary at all. I don't know. That's my it's, take. It's not. And it's also, I think it's just absurd to say that you can talk about how Donald Trump became president without getting into all the politics. Like, that's, right. you Exactly. <laughs> Like, what a ridiculous thing to say. Like, like let's take all the context out of a historical situation and just break it down for what it was without all the things that made it what it was. Like, the actual thing. It's like, yeah, you know what I mean? I feel like that that, that is a very convenient out that he's, like, laid out f- from the beginning. Like, if once this gets into politics, listen, that's not... We're not talking about that. Like, yeah. how, how... You can't do it. Like... You just can't do it. No. Yeah, there, there seem to be a lot of really important elements of a rhetorical situation that he doesn't address because right. he views this as, as entirely speaker-centered. Yes. Like, a speaker yeah. has a talent stack, and if that talent stack is weapons-grade, yeah. then It doesn't matter will. what the situation is. Yep. Yeah, and it doesn't matter who the audience is, if the audience is there for, like, to hear the message that you're putting out at a given time. Yeah, it's a pretty strange model of persuasion. I mean, it it is quite mystical and mm-hmm. like hip, hypnosis. Yeah, as if it is something yes. you need to like divine because you can't. Yes. Like, I feel like the idea of fortune telling is sort of tied to the to an idea that like there aren't there aren't patterns. Like, it's it's yeah, it's right. randomness and divine intervention, and that's what's going on. And there aren't there aren't patterns of behavior or things you can predict because of things that happened in the past. But like, to to talk about persuasion is to talk about rhetoric, and you can't just absolve yourself of any context and yeah. hope to do it like who is who is this book for i just feel like yeah. if you're if you feel like you're kind of like with it enough to like throw down on a book about okay let's dive into how people persuade other people how could anybody really buy this at all you know what i mean like i don't understand who yeah who's reading well it. I- I mean, literally, I, I'm so glad that you guys are going to this because this goes back to that whole point that he made about, like, most people believe in an objective reality where things are based on facts and reason. And it's like, yeah. I think, so Scott Adams is kind of, like, tilting his tilting his hand here a little bit when he says, I am, you know, smarter than that. I can see through all that nonsense. But it seems like he still has this very sort of, like, autonomistic view of human beings the audience of course does not matter here and in a lot of ways like he never really brings that up and i'm curious to see if he does later on but i really do not to not to put too fine a point on it but like the dilbert ethos of like Mm -hmm. look at all these stupid drones going through this office saying i'm the only one who knows to say Mm -hmm. yeah and like i am the one with the acerbic wit that's able to to see all of the all of the puppet strings that are Mm -hmm. moving these characters about the stage like yeah, I really think that this is kind of like a dehumanizing form of viewing the world. And that's my sense of what yep. this is based on right now. Like, you know, he's he's seeming to like hint at some elements of like post-modernity here. But I don't think he really has a concept of the social that is in mm. any way responsible no. to like the dignity of human beings. Um, Which is reflected so. in the fact that like the way he's written this book is for himself and not for yes. whoever's reading it. Like, yes. because the audience doesn't matter. It is a solipsistic like, enterprise, absolutely, it's, to its, its core. like, he can write whatever he wants to, because it's really, it's him just, like, having to, like, yeah, like, get it down 
right, like, record for posterity his wisdom and not really because he, like, because he even says, it's like, I'm not trying to change anybody's mind. I'm just trying to teach you guys a few, like, it just seems like it's like more of a, yeah, like he's like some kind of divine being or oracle that is like being channeled by the muse of, of, you know, of, of what this is all, you know, this wisdom that he's got. It's yeah. mm. And his, and his muse. I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to read the whole thing. Same. All right. Same. Okay. Are you guys, it's you guys very are exciting. In? Okay. Uh, All right. You get, y'all are uh, in for, for, for another well. whole series. <laughs> you might need to like take six months between each installment. <laughs> right. I feel like I'm going to need like a six month shower after just reading <laughs> that. So yeah, that's uh thank you for bearing with me on that. And thank you to our listeners. Those of you who stayed all the way to the end, you, <laughs> you are, you are true blue. We really appreciate you uh, coming on this journey with us. I um, think you're you're probably a weapons grade persuader by now. I'd yeah, say so. Stuck you it out put the time in. All this. Yep. Yeah. And if anything <laughs> on this podcast feels wrong to you, you know, you're probably right. We're probably wrong. Uh, yeah, we don't really know. We're can, just, we what is it, really commercial know. grade podcasters. Yeah. We, we are, don't know. We're, com- <laughs> we're cognitive scientists. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, we're cognitive scientists <clears throat> podcasters. Right. That doesn't mean that we study cognition as no, 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 no. Right. <laughs> But we do have PhDs in cognitive science. To be clear, we do. That's right. That's right. Which is right. If you could have a PhD (laughs) in cognitive science and publish in cognitive science, would be a commercial grade. That's a great uh, question. Or or be a master. Again, this is all. This is really. I feel like this is going to have to become a regular, regular series on the show. Regular installment. (laughs) For us to figure it out. Yeah. Yep. Yep. What is a cognitive scientist? The question of our era. (laughs) All right. That's the title of the episode. What is a cognitive (laughs) scientist? We got it. Oh, man. Well, thank you to my co-hosts and co-producers. This was a lot of fun. I hope I didn't torture you too much, but I had a really, really wonderful time talking through this with you. And hopefully, again, you know, with, with due time and, and some patience, we can, uh, we can come to another chapter of this. And, uh, you know, we'll see how our listeners feel about it, too. Uh, if we get anybody saying, don't do the Scott Adams thing anymore, then we, <laughs> we, we don't have to. But I don't know. And don't forget Scott to tweet Graham. to us about Catbert also. Yes. Catbird, yes. Dogbird. Catbird, Dogbird. Follow up. Yep. Yep. More, um, Calvin, you were going to say more, more Scott Graham, less Scott Adams. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Choose the right Scott. Yes, that's right. Shout out to Scott Graham. A great previous episode that he did with us. All right. So from all of us here at Reverb, thank you very much for joining us today. We will talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg, Calvin Pollock, and Sophie Wadzak with editing work by Alex. Reverb's co-producer at large is Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.